Modern companies leverage dozens or even hundreds of software solutions to solve specific needs of their businesses. Organizations need to collect all of these disparate data sources into a data warehouse in order to add value. The raw data typically needs transformation before it can be analyzed. In many cases, companies develop homegrown solutions, thus reinventing the wheel and possibly planting deep-rooted seeds of technical debt. Mozart Data helps you collect all of your data sources in under an hour. They provide managed data pipelines, data warehousing, and transformation automation. In this episode, I interview co-founders CEO Peter Fishman and CTO Dan Silberman about the modern data stack. Dan and Peter, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. Well, to kick things off, tell me a little bit about how the two of you guys got connected. How'd you first meet? Well, Dan and I met over 20 years ago when we were both in college. Dan's best friend in high school was my college roommate. So on a trip down to Duke, Dan and and I ended up meeting each other. And then we lived in Boston together. And then later we lived in Berkeley together. We've known each other for over 20 years. For the last kind of 15, we've both been bouncing around different technology companies across Silicon Valley. And then last year, at the start of the pandemic, we decided to found Mozart Data together. Dan and I also co-founded a hot sauce company together that we're really proud of. About 12 years ago, we started Bacon Hot Sauce, uh, the world's first and greatest bacon-flavored hot sauce. So for 10 years, we were hot sauce entrepreneurs, and now we've sort of pivoted to the to the data space full-time. Very cool. Well, I don't generally see a lot of overlap between the two industries. Tell me a little bit about some of each of your backgrounds in the data world. Sure. I've, I'm more of a data engineer. Pete is more of a data analyst, data scientist. I've worked basically all over the Bay Area, generally startups that are uh, a little bit smaller. So I've founded a few companies or I've been an early engineer at a few companies. Uh, I generally prefer working organizations, you know, 20 or fewer people. I've I've done some data science myself, but but more often I'm sort of the engineer alongside folks who are doing analysis, and I really enjoy building building tools to help them do their job better. And I've been leading and running data and analytics teams at mostly late stage startups, and in the past only late stage startups could really take advantage of all the data that they were generating. So I've generally built teams and data stacks and data tooling at late stage startups like Playdom and Yammer and Zenefits and Opendoor and most recently Ease. What have you guys seen changing in the data landscape over the time you've been in the industry? So I think the data landscape has has massively changed. I hate to do the back in my day, but I'll I'll start there. Back in my day to get sort of your data pipelines going, it would require hiring a few data engineers, spending a lot of money on a fancy database, like essentially buying a large contract that that really locked you in. And today, I think like the biggest change is that to get started with data, instead of building everything, a lot of times you can get away with buying or buying uh, for a long amount of time. Um, And the other part is that you need many fewer data engineering resources than before. I think the, the biggest change is that the buy solutions have just gotten so much better, um, so much more standard, 
And now basically people can, you know, start a data team with basically a credit card. And that's to me a giant change in in data tooling. And then of course, you know, the the obvious things like there are more data professionals. Similarly, there's a lot more data being generated, collected, but also it's become table stakes. You know, when when Dan and I were starting our careers, the types of companies that would hire data people were like Google. Today, you know, you talk to most seed stage startups, they're already thinking about hiring, not just like, say, someone out of college to analyze some of the data that they're creating, but like actually a full-fledged data professional at a pretty early stage um, because data has become table stakes for competing in the standard sort of categories of um, in B2B SaaS, in, in DTC. It's really even just the reporting of it has become table stakes for raising Series C, Series A, and beyond. I'd, I'd add to that that there's a lot more people that are comfortable in tool in things like writing SQL and answering their own questions. So people that would never call themselves a, a data engineer or a data analyst, but they've they've picked up SQL over the years uh, just to be better at their job, um, and they're able to now sort of t- take advantage of a lot of these advances as well. So, what is Mozart Data, and where does it fit into the landscape? So Mozart Data is the easiest way to spin up a modern data stack. What that means is that we manage EL for you. We provide you a managed Snowflake warehouse, and we provide a layer for doing transforms so that in under an hour, you can get up and running with a world-class stack that late-stage companies would be implementing or using, but you can really do it with no data engineering team. So the way that we fit into the landscape is we try to bring together the best-in-class pieces and the necessary pieces and the types of pieces that real practitioners end up using, and we try to put that all under one roof or, or one throat to choke. So I imagine I think of the modern technology company or even really any company, they probably have a long list of SaaS services they're using, something for accounting, maybe something for HR, add on to that probably Stripe and a few other things. And we now have all these siloed data sources. How does Mozart Data help me with those? So that's exactly it. There's this sort of incredible explosion in SaaS tools, but a lot of the sort of winners of these spaces are becoming quite evident and writing the extract and load from you know a tool like stripe to a database is a solved problem and you know i think the idea is that data has power in these silos so you can go to stripe or you can go to shopify and you can you know look at account of your customers um, but what you really want to do is actually bring all of this data together so data becomes really valuable for making like insight or, or or doing an ad hoc analysis when you're able to combine off, often data from multiple different places, typically in a central warehouse. So that's really, you hit on really the punchline for why of Mozart's existence, which is the right way. And, and you see like most sophisticated companies that use their data um, do it the following way, which is they're doing their analysis out of a, a you know, a powerful columnar. When uh, data engineers maybe aren't aware of a tool like Mozart, I think it's very easy to think, well, let's just spin this up. I can go to the vendor's website. Maybe they've got 
very developer-friendly documentation. I've kind of got my hello world going in a few minutes even. That happens quite often with a lot of modern tooling. So for a developer with a not-built-here sort of attitude, what's the pitch for Mozart data? There's so much functionality that data engineers all the world over are just building over and over again. I've personally in my career built you know, similar data stacks, similar tools, five, six times in some cases. So, I mean, if you really only want to build build things again, like I have that syndrome, that's one of the reasons why I, I've, I've done that. But the, some of the underlying tools have gotten so good that there's really no reason to focus on building the mechanics of pulling data from one API and putting it into a database or snapshotting tables or scheduling transformations. The more that you can rely on tried and true, tested, other people's code that will do that for you, the more you can focus on you know, the specifics of your data, the questions that can actually help your company, and really focusing on the problems that are unique to your data. Well, you have a lot of, I think, 120 plus connectors I, I read about on the site. Could you give a sampling of what types of systems you're currently integrated with? Yeah. Our, so our most popular are you know, Shopify, Stripe, Salesforce, everybody is kind of running half their business off of Google Sheets. So being able to pull that into your central database is really valuable. Most of our customers have some sort of application database, MySQL or Postgres, um, that ideally you're not running your analytics queries on. Much better to replicate that into a columnar database and then do your analysis off of that. And then like, like you mentioned before, accounting tools, CRM, marketing is a big one. Yeah, I think I think marketing attribution is a a really good way to kind of understand the power of this, where you can look at your how your ads in Google Ads are doing. You can look at how your ads in Facebook or Instagram are doing. But if you really want to know, you know, what is our average customer acquisition cost? A, a simple thing like that is going to require pulling all that data into one place, mixing it up with you know the however you're being paid from your customers. And so a, a tool like this, getting a central database and then pulling all of your data into it, that's when you can really unlock like some other questions that are going to be very valuable to you. Can you describe a little bit about the experience once all the data has landed there? Let's say I've uh, at my organization, have connected five or six of those tools you mentioned. Uh, we're an e-commerce company with a Shopify store and Stripe and a few other things, uh, and I'm fully wired up with Mozart data. Now I have a question. Okay, uh, great. I can write some SQL queries. How do I know the schema and uh, what kind of opportunities do I have to cut between or join between those data sets? So... A lot of the inspiration uh, for Mozart comes uh, from a quote of a former boss of mine. Um, and there's this, this line that I've always loved, which, which he says is that data scientists spend 95% of their time cleaning data and 5% of their time complaining about cleaning data. Um, and they basically never spend any time doing data science. And obviously the punchline of the joke is you're expecting them to say 5% of the time doing work, but it's actually not even that. So a lot of what a good transform layer is, is basically the ability, like you said, to explore the data, to understand essentially the columns in, in the tables and, and what the definition of uh, like what key business definitions actually mean in, in, in terms of SQL. 
So, uh, like what our what our transform layer is is essentially one that's easy to do those things, things that practitioners do to explore your tables, you know, and also to then uh, clean up your data by by writing those transforms and scheduling them really easily. Let's unpack a little bit more about that transform process. Let's say that I'm a data engineer and I'm at the helm of Mozart Data. And I've got some very custom need, you know, there's something as the data flows through, I want to do some aggregation. Uh, How do I get in there and get the system to help me with that? I mean, basically a a transform, anything you can do in SQL, if you can write, you know, if you can write a SQL query in your BI tool, and that result is going to be useful for, you know, more than five minutes. In our tool, it's very easy to cut and paste that. You can run it and then you can schedule it however often you want you want it to run. And we'll do things like, uh, you know, we'll automatically parse your SQL to show you the data lineage so that you can see, you know, if if some transformation breaks, say, you'll get a notification, but then you can also see what, what else depended on this, what might have broken because this broke, or generally more importantly, you can look back and see, you know, if nobody changed the code in this, it shouldn't have broken unless something upstream of it broke. So kind of being able to see the lineage of how your data is flowing from the time it lands from your SAS tools until it's in, you know, what what you might think of as your productionized tables that are ready for easier analysis. You can see very easily how the data flows through, if something breaks everything downstream of it that's impacted by that and things like that. Gotcha. The each of those integrations I don't want to use the word brittle. It's not that they're brittle, but something could happen. You know, a, an IT professional could decide to rotate a key and suddenly you're no longer able to sync data until that update has to happen. So to some degree, maybe that's the most minor case. You have to keep an eye or maintain these connections. Um, to what degree do users of Mozart data have to think about those connections or monitor them on a day-to-day basis? Uh, basically none. That's That's kind of one of the big points of of us doing that for you. Uh, you know, if Salesforce changes their, their APIs a bit, a million people can go and change their EL process or the few companies that kind of support that sort of EL, they can go and change that code. Mozart will go and, and update our Salesforce connector so that you don't, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, the, you know, the credential rotation, that'll be something that, that our customers would have to go and deal with, but they'll get a notification that it, that it failed and then they can see why, and then they can go and create a new token or whatever. Very neat. Well, I'd love to talk through maybe a hypothetical integration. Uh, let's say some e-commerce company, we've got a Shopify store and I would like to update my HubSpot CRM records when uh, sales are made. What's the process like to get that going? To clarify, do you mean like a reverse ETL? You want you want data pushed from Shopify into HubSpot? Or maybe we should revise the question. Uh, just looking to explore like a concrete user story. Got it. So we we do have some customers that are using uh, exactly Shopify and HubSpot. So we don't. I'll kind of go back to my previous statement. We don't actually do reverse ETL much. We'll let you sync things to Google Sheets. But if you want to go like from Shopify and HubSpot into your data warehouse, we cover that. And then if you want to do some analysis or, you know, combine your Shopify user info with your HubSpot 
support info perhaps, and then push that back into Shopify or HubSpot. We don't currently cover that part of the data stack. We, we partner with a couple of companies. Uh, you know, we're, I really like high touch for that, for example. Gotcha. So it's really about empowering the analyst then, I guess, pulling all data together in a common SQL interface. Yeah, I think like Dan highlighted that we sort of stop um, where the data becomes specific to you. We are big believers in having having humans that have sort of an intimate knowledge of uh, the tables and the business and the business logic and definitions really drive the insights and the combining. Very often, the types of tools that sort of out of the box can do this for you, I think, fall short or miss the key insight that you're trying to drive out of the data just because there's... You know, I mean, I, I think sort of uh, we can call it messy data, but it, it's really just sort of misleading data because, you know, essentially tip, typically more is better. And then like somebody trained that knows the data can can refine it down. Yeah, I think the centralization here ends up paying off in dividends that you don't really expect to see with one person's work empowering somebody else's work. So like, you know, the 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 cleaning and organizing that Pete was talking about a few minutes ago, that could be done in a, in a BI tool. But if one analyst does that in their BI tool, that's not helping anybody else do their job better. But if you centralize that and it's in, you know, effectively a shared repository of code and you've got these production tables, then maybe one team can be empowered to answer their questions in Tableau now. The analysts ha- also have cleaned up data to do whatever, you know, machine learning or just you know make some charts that they want to do, and then maybe like we're saying, some other team wants that data piped back into HubSpot so that their customer support folks can have some extra information when they're dealing with with people that doesn't actually live in HubSpot unless it goes through a process like this, gets cleaned up, and then then put back into the tool. And this is, I think, a lot of what has inspired the change of the acronym. So in general, people are now saying ELT or ETLT. It's really highlighting the importance of that last sort of T stage before the BI, so the last transform stage before the BI. So it has really become a common best practice to be cleaning and transforming and sort of having a uniform set of definitions one layer above your BI tool. I think what you like back in my day, the practice was always do messy copy and paste of SQL or of sort of drag and drop definitions in your BI tool. Today, you know, it's it's been well surfaced that a very, very, very common problem is that, you know, it's one question, several different quote correct answers. One of the not like cure-alls, but one of the best ways of addressing this very common problem is to have, you know, common definitions written essentially before the BI layer. Interesting. So in that regard, I would describe Mozart data as like foundational, that it's going to have uh, maybe a few key services that you'd offer in that transform layer. Uh, I'm thinking like data enrichment could be one, a little bit of cleanup. Uh, What are some of the appropriate things that you see people using it for before hitting their BI layer? Mostly joining. So like unioning and joining. 
So again, I think this is where the power of like, you know, this is where one plus one definitely doesn't equal two. It is certainly the case. And and Dan gave an example where you can very easily sort of assess like, how are my Google ads doing? Or how are my Facebook ads doing? Um, but what you really actually want to know is, is is often further down the funnel than is than is easy to measure. When you're sort of assessing things like CAC and LTV, you're often making assumptions once users get to a certain stage if you're only able to analyze the data from your essentially your marketing sources. You also have a slightly tough time comparing marketing sources because you know you you, you can't necessarily you might see that you know that each is providing you the same cost to get leads to the same place but those leads might perform incredibly differently and then last if there is such a thing as attribution you can't do it well when you're doing an individual source because most often if you were to ask say google how how they're doing in terms of what credit they deserve on on a lead you know they would say all of it and that might not actually be true. You might have learned about it in another place and the, the last touch might have been actually through search. But I think like the, the typical answer is that it is really important to join data together or, or union data. And you know, that's not necessarily specific to, to Mozart. It certainly is the case that there are, there are many tools in, in both the transfer space and the BI space that enable you to do it, but it, it is certainly a best practice to get basically as much of your sort of going to be making decisions off of data together in, in your data warehouse. Makes sense. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the evolution of a team growing in a startup or a mid-sized company with the availability of tools like yours, it seems like maybe a data engineer could be delayed a bit because some of the fundamental stuff can be done in an automated fashion. I don't believe we'll ever eliminate the data engineer position. I think the tooling just scales the professional, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on how these things might be evolving in the modern tech group. Sure. I agree with you that the, the data engineer's job is not going away. In fact, the demand for data engineers is massively outpacing the supply. So I wouldn't be worried about your employment prospects if you are a data engineer, not because of the existence of Mozart or, or similar tooling, um, just because the demand for data and, and people very capable of moving and manipulating um, and summarizing data is just honestly increasing, you know, it feels like by the minute. So the point is not to totally obsolete the data engineer. That said, it's not not to do that. And I, I, I actually attended a talk by, by George Frazier of Fivetran. Um, and Fivetran is an organization of many hundreds of people that doesn't have a data engineer. Now, their business is to obsolete the data engineer. But I would say that you can see very large, very successful businesses that would typically rely on not a single data engineer, but a team of data engineers to do certain work. What you don't want is people that are becoming increasingly more scarce and increasingly more valuable, and their output is becoming increasingly more leveraged, doing highly rote work that, like as Dan had mentioned, in some sense is a solved problem where people are solving it at scale. So I think I'm I'm religiously of the camp of the the tooling, you know, including Mozart, is now at a stage that's good enough that can certainly push your first data hire not to necessarily be an engineer or a data engineer or a hybrid data engineer and, and data analyst. 
Instead, you should be looking for essentially the types of skills that, you know, you should leverage a tool like Mozart and then hire for the types of skills that are, are important for teasing out insights from the data. I'm curious if you have any thoughts or are seeing patterns as the product grows around the right point of adoption. Is this something early stage companies are picking up because they see the need and they don't want to build out all these connectors? Or is it something a later stage company is adopting? So the answer is both. I am surprised at just how early, you know, companies are, are essentially getting on board with data. Again, uh, most of the companies that I joined, I joined as employee number 100. And that was the time where they were making big investments in data teams. Today, you know, we obviously have sold to companies in our YC batch that were just a few people, even before they started, you know, generating a lot of revenue or certainly a lot of data. Um, Again, part of that is, like I mentioned in an earlier answer, part of that is that you can just get started so much more inexpensively, right? So aside from the people cost, you can buy, you know, a trivial amount of uh, compute. So basically, there's a variety of reasons why the sort of use of data is happening at an earlier and earlier stage, but it's mostly because it's demanded of these companies. So it can be demanded by the market to like behave optimally, right? So to figure out what's working and what's not and double down into those that's working. And there are so many tools that are much better at sending you signals about what's working. You know, you can hook up a product analytics tool and instantly see, you know, what users are doing and how they're interacting with your your website. Similarly, you know, it's, it's the case that, uh, you know, it might be demanded by the, by the capital market. The, so in order to get venture funding, you know, people like to know these are your metrics and the ability to gather like the standard set of metrics very quickly and update them with a single click is a really, you know, powerful tool for, for raising money. So really, I would say that the reason that the, the movement has been like has gotten data to to show up at earlier and earlier stages. And now it's really not uncommon for for pre-seed companies, especially technically savvy ones to to be using data and even a lot of data is because one, again, it's sort of like supply and demand. There is an increased demand for it. And it and again, it's also like a lot easier. So there's there's an increased supply of of, of tooling. Avoiding the reinvention of the wheel is one of the most appealing things to me for a tool like Mozart Data. I've got plenty of stuff I need my engineers to build. Why redo yet another Stripe integration or something like that? But then, of course, the maybe added benefit of that that a lot of people miss is that I also don't have to main it, maintain it. That's your problem. Are there any challenges you've seen, uh, especially over time, maintaining such a large number of connections in light of you know possible breaking changes from vendor APIs and things like that? I mean, th- this stuff scales pretty well. You know, when when we fix a connector. We fix it for all of our customers, and you know, if, if we didn't exist and those people weren't using a, a similar tool, that's you know, ten x the work, hundred x the work. So, I, I mean, th- this to me seems like the efficient way to do it. Basically, pull it in in a very generic way, and then each each person can transform it in whatever way is is unique to their needs. And then we just have to maintain like that initial. Let's just get it all out. We're going to naively put it in your database, and then you can take it from there. 
Right, right. And I like the appeal of that, that effectively any challenges on the API end become your problem. I was just curious, and maybe this hasn't happened, maybe it's been fortunate, but it wouldn't surprise me to know that, let's say, one of your connections, and we don't have to name them or anything, would you know, do a, a botched release, and suddenly you're getting all these rate limit errors, and now that's your issue to solve for 100 people using that connection. Do you face challenges like that, or is the ecosystem of APIs pretty stable? We definitely do face that. I mean, I the answer is just hire really good engineers and have them build systems to monitor and, you know, staging environments so we don't push broken things, kind of standard engineering practices or standard good engineering practices. We do use, you know, our 120 connectors. We use a mix of powered by Fivetran. So Fivetran maintains a lot of those connectors. We use Singer taps, many open source public Singer taps. So the community is maintaining those. And then we write our own singer taps. So it does get complicated. But, you know, my advice, my advice to a listener is use a tool that's doing that maintaining for you. If you're going to maintain it, then, you know, build a good engineering team with, with good engineering practices. What does the getting started story look like today? If there's maybe a listener at a startup thinking they need a tool like this, I know you guys are doing demos and things like that. Are you accepting new customers and what's an onboarding process look like? So, so we're definitely accepting new customers uh, and we will continue to be doing that for a while. The onboarding process, you know, we try to make it painless, right? So the that's the brag, right? Like, so what we think of as our value prop is the ability to, is sort of like the easy button for onboarding a world-class data pipeline. What it typically involves is one, you can, you can sign up for it uh, on, our, on our website and you, know, you, you don't have to talk to, to me or, or anyone like me uh, to get started. The flip of it is, is that I find it to be a lot like superhuman where like a 30-minute sort of consultation that's just simply a push in the back I, you know, I, when I, when I signed up for superhuman, I didn't really need to know how to use an email client. It just, it was just really nice to have somebody sort of walk me through kind of using the platform. And when you do that, I think like the biggest challenge with, with most things data is just getting started. And, you know, I, I think it's, again, it's an intuitive enough, intuitive enough platform that you should be off to the races in, in under an hour. Uh, but it's always great to essentially have have those best practices or uh, a lot of that experience with the data cleaning uh, really at, at your fingertips or, or, or the standard sort of outputs or, or tables that are going to be really critical to, you know, most businesses when they fall into, you know, the categories of B2B, you know, DTC, etc., what are some of the unique challenges in industries like that? Uh, Direct-to-consumer is kind of an interesting one in particular, if you have time to unpack it. Well, I mean, that's not a particular... Most businesses have, have especially at the early stage, are, are really trying to solve a mystery, which is, what is my LTV and what is my CAC? And if you can sort of get your... And, you know, some... Some DTC businesses sell a one-off product. You know, I think at the start of this, I mentioned that Dan and I sold hot sauce. So we had a Shopify site that uh, baconhotsauce.com where we sold hot sauce. And you know, a lifetime value as a hot sauce seller 
tends to be, you know, honestly, a lot of one-off if you're doing sort of online hot sauce sales. So there's not really much of a lifetime value calculation. For other companies, there's sort of repeat purchases, there's increase in basket size, there's sort of uh, churn, there's all of these things that, that, that people are trying to measure. If you're a DTC company, you're really trying to measure two things. One, you know, like I said, is lifetime value. The problem is you don't have a lifetime uh, to let that live out. So you're trying to make inference about how often a customer comes back based on typically, you know, cohort analysis and, 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 and you know, shorter time windows than, you know, it's sort of it's not all that useful to make the prediction, you know, call if you do a one-year LTV or a two-year LTV or a 10-year LTV, it's certainly not useful to make that prediction 10 years later. So the other side of it is CAC. So you want to just measure, you know, your marketing spend and you want to measure its efficacy. And also you want to measure that on the margin. And then you want to essentially divide one by the other. And hopefully if, you know, you're a good business, that ratio is good. And then you sort of dial in how much you want to grow rapidly versus sort of make that ratio look good. As you, as you amp it up, that ratio gets worse. So that's, that's really a business decision. But really, in the DTC space, those are the main metrics. And then the question is, how do you get at them, especially when you're doing multiple channels for advertising, especially when there's real like ambiguity about kind of, uh, you know, customer lifetimes. So these are, you know, there there's a little bit more art than science, but at the end of the day, those are the questions. And the, the best way to be answering that question is generally to, you know, again, get the data to a central place and then be able to join the tables and then, and then start analyzing it. If I'm in a situation, I, I happen to know a lot of those direct-to-consumer products, they'll make pretty swift decisions early on with some early indicators and things like that. So recency is critical. Uh, what's the story for recency in Mozart data? Yeah, so uh, let me say that we're not like a company that believes in analysis paralysis. You know, we have a company core value. Like, you know, most often in doing our own analyses, we like to, to do the 80 80-20 principle. I'm somebody that, you know, did my PhD and I spent probably of the, the six years I was in grad school, uh, I probably spent like five of them getting uh, the standard errors of my uh, point estimate in my, my dissertation right to like four decimals. That's not kind of how one makes decisions, but it's very much the case that cohorts change. Right? And they, they, they change rapidly when the source changes or they change rapidly over time. So like most often when you're looking at a cohort analysis, you are looking at like a time-based cohort analysis or a channel-based cohort analysis. And I think often where companies get in trouble is they have great success in a specific channel and they think that it generalizes. So looking at your the ability to look at your data with a a short lag is a really, you know, powerful solution to, you know, a world where things sort of shift under your feet, you know, you know, by the day, week, month, whatever it is. Gotcha. No, I meant um in terms of recency that uh you're in some sense at the behest of whatever the API does. You know, if it's, let's say, an ad tech server, I'm going to pull in some campaign data. If they only update at midnight, well, that's as quickly as I can get new data in. Do you face any engineering challenges? Or I guess as a user, I might like to know what I should expect in terms of uh, how in sync my systems are. What's the typical experience like? I would say these days, most APIs are pretty good about, you know, their their data that they'll provide is 
in general, you know, almost real time, it might go through some internal ETL process, but that's going to be running very, very constantly. And we'll let you sync as often as every five minutes for a connector. So you can get it, at least get it into your database. And then, you know, it really depends on how much work is going to happen from the time it lands in your data warehouse till it's till it's at the tables that are then feeding into your other systems or your reporting. And that's kind of just on a case-by-case basis. Depends on, you know, depends on how many hours, if you have hours of compute, if it's seconds, you can, you know, you can get pretty real time. I think the important thing is that like, you're often comparing this, you know, many of our, definitely some of our smaller customers, they would say, you know, I, I like to lead often if I'm talking to a new potential customer with with trying to tease out what are some questions that you wish you knew about your business and you know, you know, are out there in some combination of your data, but you can't you can't put it together. And oftentimes they'll say, oh, well, we here's our main question and we do have the answer. It's just that it takes three days to pull data from all these different sources. Then we put it into Excel and then we do a bunch of manual joins and then we have this monthly report. So in, in a lot of cases, you know, we're automating and then making making data, you know, have one hour of lag rather than what used to be, you know, sometimes a month of lag and and much more manual labor to produce. Gotcha. Do you face any sort of cold start problem? Uh, a new customer could sign up tomorrow with a 20-year history in their Salesforce account. I'll say a tiny bit. We had one one potential customer that we lost because we were syncing their HubSpot data, and three weeks later, it wasn't done. But that's a, that's a real outlier. Most of these connectors, you can you can connect it, and tomorrow your data will be there. In the worst case, in some cases, it's it's you know almost instantaneous. It really depends on on how much data we're talking, and some of the details of the connector. HubSpot happens to have pretty strict rate limiting, so. If you have millions of users in your HubSpot account, there's just no way around it. It's going to take a while to get that data in. Makes sense, yeah. I'm curious about who are the people that find you guys and bring you into their organization? Is there a commonality to the title of the person who first engages? So the answer is actually it's it's quite varied. You know, we... We typically, you know, interact with a lot of data folks. So, you know, data analysts and, and heads of analytics and data scientists. But actually, our best customers tend to actually have ops-related titles. Sales ops, marketing ops, biz ops, rev ops. Usually, it's somebody that's been kind of saddled with the challenge of bringing uh, data into the organization or doing reporting at the executive level, but they might not have a really deep background in, in data or data pipelines, and they certainly don't have a budget for hiring one, two, or even more data engineers. Those are really our ideal customers. Um, as Dan mentioned, there's this real great growing population of, of folks that have been at Companies that have very successfully leveraged data, and, and, and in doing so, they've really um, empowered themselves by, by learning SQL and learning how to manipulate and think about data. And now kind of they find themselves at, at companies that don't have that existing infrastructure, and they sort of, they want it. They miss that ability to answer kind of questions in a, in a really automated fashion and the ability to sort of dive into the tables and and not be sort of living out of spreadsheets uh, exclusively. So 
there's this growing population and these folks used to have the title like data analyst or business analyst, but now they're really uh, anyone. There's folks in product orgs, in marketing orgs, a lot of uh, folks in, in sales and sales operations orgs as well that all, all are becoming really data savvy. And that's a great trend that we really hope to take advantage of. I see a number of directions you could go, but I'm curious about the ways in which Mozart data is going to grow in the future. What are the plans for where the product will head? So, I mean, the the way that we think about product direction, we work really closely with with a lot of our customers. And, you know, our, our goal is to make your job easier as an analyst. So, you know, we work closely with our customers and we're pretty aware of what is currently hard for them with their current tools when that includes Mozart. So, I mean, some of the specifics kind of as a data team or as an organization matures in their use of data, the stuff that comes up uh, that needs a little bit more work are things like data cataloging and observability. So understanding how the data is flowing through your system and then, you know, being able to take advantage one person's work being able to be taken advantage of by another person that requires some, you know, some cataloging and so that you can basically share the information so that others can take advantage of that. And also a lot of stuff around permissioning as, as a company grows and maybe, you know, the, the initial users of a system like this are effectively admins of the whole data, but then they start empowering other people in the organization to answer questions. Maybe they hook up possibly even like a, a no code BI tool or a low code BI tool, and you start empowering other people in the org to answer questions, then you have issues around permissioning. And you might want, you know, the sales team is now going to use some of the outputs of your data pipeline, but you you don't want them to have access to the HR data that's also in the database for a different team to, to use. And that can be, you know, th- those are tricky DBA problems to manage that. So we have we have plans on our roadmap to try to make that easier to manage. When Mozart data gets deployed to one of your customers, is it a set it and forget it kind of thing? Or does someone in my org end up operating that in some way? So we have some of both. I mean, you don't, you can, you can connect something, maybe transform something and then set up a dashboard and that dashboard will work, you know, forever. And some of our customers do that. They come to us, they have some problem, they know they can solve it with a combination of data across their tools, and we help them get there. But most companies at that point will then also see, now they understand kind of the power that they have, and they'll start they'll start building more pipelines, they'll start answering other questions. And one thing we definitely see, you know, the, the core Mozart users at a company, they'll often, you know, they are then more efficient at answering questions. And so they'll start getting more and more questions coming into them. And, and you know, the, the use of data tends to grow when you see it being successful and, and easier to do. And do you envision, uh, you know, to make a comparison to the Elk stack where you have Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana, do you see Mozart being the M of some other stack? Yeah. Well, so we're trying to kind of be... We try to cover everything in a data stack. Like right now, you can build a data stack using 10 different services, right? There's a ton of companies that are like, all we do is data cataloging. All we do is data lineage. All we do is transformations or EL. We're trying to be the, you know, the turnkey all-in-one. But in many cases, you're, you're going to want to go deep on one dimension of that. So, you know, you might 
you might get most of what you need out of Mozart, but then you want to hook up one dedicated cataloging tool or you want to use a machine learning tool, things like that. And so that's, that's a pretty common use case. Like I was mentioning before with like reverse ETL, that's, that's something that we dabble in a little bit. Um, but if you want to go into deep, deep on that, then there's, you know, there's whole big companies of people that are dedicated just to moving data out of a data warehouse and back in into SaaS tools. So th- those are pretty common partners for us. What's your common uh, use case for people getting started? And can you tell anyone who's listening and fits that model where they can get going? Yeah, when companies are are really ready to make that investment in data, whether that's a person, whether that's data infrastructure, we want to be the easiest, fastest, most cost-effective way of getting you uh, successful at the start of your data journey. Like, our goal as a company is to basically empower business users to take advantage of their data, to write definitions in languages and tooling they're comfortable in, uh, like SQL. And we think of ourselves as the easiest way really to get started with a world-class modern data stack. And I'll throw in there, you can go to www.mozartdata.com and either sign up for a demo if you want to chat or sign up for a 14-day free trial. Well, Dan and Peter, thank you both so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It was a pleasure.